Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 269, questions 13. Let's get into the final batch of questions for this end of the century period. Listener CK asks, why did the Romans rarely attempt to make diplomatic marriages with non-Romans prior to the Crusades? Could Justinian, for example, have married an Ostrogothic princess rather than Theodora. I thought we'd start with this one as it ties into what we talked about last week. The Comnenian century saw lots of marriages between Romans and neighbouring aristocrats, but in Justinian's day a foreign marriage was almost unthinkable. Obviously for a long time the Roman Empire was so powerful that it didn't need to bother with diplomatic marriages and its ideology essentially saw Rome as civilization and those outside it as barbarians. So to offer marital alliances would have been beneath the dignity of the empire. It would have been an acknowledgement that a neighboring state were, in some sense, equal to the Romans. Over time, a few foreign brides were welcomed in, but that was seen as acceptable because... Um, a Khazar woman, for example, would turn up and be baptised and taught how to behave properly. Whereas to send a Roman woman to the Khazars would have been intolerable, since an Orthodox Christian would have been dispatched to live as a pagan. Once the Bulgars and the Rus had converted, then they could be considered somewhat acceptable places to send Roman women. Foreign marriages slowly became more important as the chessboard became more crowded. States multiplied along the imperial borders, and so more alliances were necessary to keep the peace. Eventually, Manuel Komnenos started marrying off every available woman in his family in an attempt to be accepted as part of the Latin club. With similar echoes of our last few episodes, listener DB asks, did the Romans have a national identity? They obviously felt they were Roman and not Latin, but the lack of a united front against the Fourth Crusade makes me wonder if they were more feudal than national in their mindset. This is an area of serious academic debate, as Nathan Websdale was telling us. Antony Caldellis would argue that the Romans did have something akin to a modern national identity, 
Other scholars take a different view. We have to remember that the local was always more important to pre-modern people than the national. They didn't have mass media or maps giving them a clear sense of the boundaries of a national community. In general, those who were Greek-speaking and Orthodox recognised that they were Romans, but that didn't mean they owed allegiance to a national state. We've seen Romans live happily under Bulgarian rule or Seljuk rule, and people on, say, Cyprus, though recognising their own Romanness, would doubtless have also seen themselves as Cypriot, as having a distinguishing characteristics that were local and which marked them as different, uh, particularly when they met people <laughs> from Constantinople. Um, listener DB is from Taiwan and imagines a more unified national response if, say, an aggressive neighbouring state were to attack. The Romans, by contrast, seemed disunited and confused when the Fourth Crusade arrived. But that is, of course, down to the specific context of the moment. Provincial rebellions had drained away some sense of unity. The Latins were seen as participants in a civil war rather than conquerors, and even when they took over, they were viewed as foreign Christians rather than as an enemy who might attempt to eradicate their civilization. Listener B.N., amongst others, remains confused as to why Constantinople, such a large wealthy city, did not have vast trading fleets of its own. Why was it dependent on Venice, Pisa and Genoa? I have covered this before on the podcast, so I'll give a brief answer. There is an entirely understandable misconception out there that Constantinople, the city, had grown wealthy from trade. It's an idea that is influenced by the modern world and our perception of how places grow rich. But the true source of New Rome's cash flow was tax revenue. The Romans taxed the farmland for hundreds of miles in every direction, and the money they generated was far, far greater than the dues that the state collected from merchant shipping. There were native industries who sold things to foreign buyers, but that kind of trading wasn't considered a priority by the government or by rich Romans. Uh, you know, wealthy landowners in the empire did sell things for profit, but the money they could make from that paled in comparison to the salaries which the imperial court offered to its highest officials. So the answer is a structural one. Byzantium was a very centralised state whose culture favoured the land. There were plenty of Roman ships on the sea, but they mainly traded within the empire. The investment was rarely made to seek profits from transactions with foreign nations. The incentive just wasn't there, since there was plenty of cash to be had within the empire. Venice, Pisa and Genoa, by contrast, had very small hinterlands, with no prospect of making vast profits from the land. They were small city-states, so they invested in the sea. Their whole cultural outlook was based on buying and selling goods in foreign lands. And I think some people bring a modern perspective. Why wouldn't the Byzantines try to make more money if they could? And that just wasn't the culture in Byzantium. Byzantium, you know, for most of its history, had plenty of money and did not see 
profit-making as uh, an end in itself. As I say, everybody did it, but uh, wealth did not buy you a place at court. You know, um, how coming from a good family, you know, doing state service, fighting in land battles, showing bravery and nobility on the battlefield. You know, these sorts of things had more cultural cachet than just uh, making money. It's also worth remembering that for long periods, Byzantium's neighbours were their enemies. And so sort of trying to create huge trade networks with them was complex if you were then going to war. Whereas Venice, Pisa and Genoa were a long way from, say, Egypt, where they went to make money. So they weren't seen as fifth columnists or, you know, spies uh, when they were wandering around Cairo looking for a deal. Uh, we should also remember that the absence of a home fleet, so this is moving sort of into the military aspect of it, you know, lots of listeners asking, well, why on earth would they let the fleet run down, you know, and why would such a rich city not have a navy, you know, there to defend it when the Fourth Crusade arrived? You know, this was a contingent event. Right up to the beginning of Isaac Angelos's reign, the government had a fleet. They had about 70 ships that they sent to Cyprus to retake the island, and uh, you know, the fleet was badly damaged in an attack as they tried to do that. And it was the series of events which followed, starting with the Bulgarian revolt, which drained the treasury and prevented the government from rebuilding the navy. Listener SK asks about the nature of political legitimacy along the borders of the Roman world. I'm thinking about the Seljuks, the Crusader states, the Armenians in Cilicia, the Serbs, Bulgarians, and whatever is going on in the Armenian-Georgian lands. Were they deriving their legitimacy from the empire to one degree or another, or from a different source? I was thinking about the negotiations going on with the Second Bulgarian Empire, where the Romans were offering recognition. I would love a lightning round going through these various states and their conceits of legitimacy and its relation to Constantinople. It's a great question, and I'm not an expert on any of those other places, but I'll do my best. So the Seljuks saw their legitimacy as coming from Baghdad and the Caliphate. They saw themselves as part of the wider Sunni Muslim world. Kilij Arslan II did come to Constantinople and promised to be subordinate to Manuel, but he did that to prevent the Romans from attacking him. He didn't owe his authority to the emperor in any way. It was merely a peace treaty, and as soon as he felt he could shrug off this vassalage, he did so, which led to the Myriokephalon campaign. Similarly, the Georgian monarchy traced its roots a long way back to the history of that region. Uh, technically, the Georgian monarchs who ruled in 1204 had formed their particular state during the reign of Basil II, but despite their entanglement with Byzantine politics, they didn't need the Roman state to justify their claims to power. Most of what we think of as Armenia was divided in this period between the Georgians and various Muslim states. Only down in Cilicia was there an independent Armenian-led state. As you may recall, large numbers of Armenian aristocrats were settled in Anatolia by Basil II as he absorbed their kingdoms into the empire. 
in the aftermath of Manzikert, these people moved south into the Taurus Mountains and Cilicia itself, where there were already large numbers of Armenian settlers. As the Turks overran the plateau, Cilicia, guarded somewhat by the mountains, uh, remained independent, and for a time it was held by one of Romanos Theoyenis' generals. Um, eventually it fell to the Turks, and the native Roman population lived mostly on the plains and in the cities, and they just got on with daily life. It was the Armenians who resisted Muslim rule. They were a people of the highlands, after all, so many of them scaled the Taurus Mountains, occupied the Roman forts there, and lived somewhat free of the control of the authorities down below. Alexius Komnenos hoped that by capturing Cilicia and Antioch during the First Crusade, he could plug these Armenian lords back into the court system. But the Latin capture of Antioch scuppered these plans, and essentially the Armenian nobles never fully accepted the return of Roman rule. As you know, both John and Manuel Komnenos marched through Cilicia on various occasions, reinstalling imperial garrisons as they went. But these places were never fully secure, not so long as the Armenians ruled the mountains and claimed an authority of their own. The Rubenid dynasty, who would eventually emerge as the leaders of Cilician Armenia, traced their kingship back to the pre-Basil II royalty of Armenia. This title, king, was confirmed by the Holy Roman Empire shortly before the Fourth Crusade. The Latins wanted Armenian aid for Utremir, and so were happy to offer acknowledgement um, of their royal status, despite their non Catholic faith. The pre-Basil II Bulgarian kingdom had owed its legitimacy somewhat to Constantinople, but the new kingdom, uh, created just before the Fourth Crusade, had avoided relying on the approval of Constantinople uh, for its you know, recognition of its authority. And it did this, as we discussed in the narrative, by negotiating with Rome instead. The Pope sent bishops to crown the new king, Kaloyan, and make his leading bishop into a primate. But Kaloyan was a clever man, and he ignored these Latin terms and styled himself Tsar anyway, and called his chief bishop the Patriarch. So though he nominally accepted Rome's authority, he made no change to the orthodoxy of his subjects' worship, and he took no orders from the pontiff. And as we'll see when the narrative resumes, Kaloyan will be no ally of the Latins of Constantinople. So culturally, at least, he was very much still in the Byzantine uh, sphere of influence. Technically, the Serbians had also received royal acknowledgement from Rome before Constantinople, back around the time of Manzikert. But for most of the Komnenian century, the Serbs had been under the thumb of the Byzantines, their leaders requiring the consent of the emperor to rule. This was an arrangement that could only be imposed by force. When the Romans stopped being able to squash the Serbs, they broke away from imperial control. In 1190, Isaac Angelos recognised the obvious, that Serbia was an independent kingdom 
which would have to be negotiated with as such. Finally, the Crusader states owed their legitimacy entirely to the papacy, who dished out crowns and titles and bishoprics. Though obviously, the king of Jerusalem and prince of Antioch had a big say in who was appointed where. For a brief period, Manuel Komnenos had imposed his suzerainty on these men, forcing them to acknowledge him as their overlord, but with his death they quickly shrugged off these promises. Speaking of Bulgaria, uh, you know that Peter and Arsen hired a lot of Cuman mercenaries to fight for them, as in nomads from the steppe to the north of the Danube. Listener KP asks, how did they manage to keep so many Cumans in their army over a number of years? I thought the nomads were hard to corral. I imagine they offered them the prized choice of booty from the Roman lands they were raiding. The Bulgarian rebellion happened to coincide with a period of peace north of the Danube, so there were lots of nomads at the border looking for something to do. Apparently, in 1201, one of the Rus states began attacking the Cuman homeland, and so there were far fewer nomads to hire. Shortly afterwards, the Bulgarians agreed to Roman peace terms. Listener KP asks what the Bulgarian army would have looked like, and I think it would have been much the same as the Roman army. Infantry and lighter armed cavalry. Where the Romans hired Latins and Turks to add muscle to their forces, the Bulgarians relied on the Cumans. Listener AS questions my assertion that during the reign of the Angeloi, what the Empire really needed was a competent general in charge. Listener AS reasonably points out that with so many enemies popping up everywhere and provinces breaking away, what difference would a great general have made? It's entirely possible that it would have made little difference, but the longer I've studied ancient and medieval history, the more I've come to recognise the importance of morale and leadership on an army, and how one victory can spiral into entire regions collapsing before a seemingly unstoppable force. We saw this most obviously with the First Crusade. Yes, they had large numbers of men, but it was their willingness to march directly at the enemy and risk annihilation that brought them victory time after time. Their opponents did not have the same conviction, and so ran when the going got tough. Closer in time to 1204, we should look at the victory of Isaac Angelos over the rebel general Alexius Vranus. This was in episode 253 of the podcast. Vranus had the main Roman army at his back, whereas Angelos only had the palace guards and whatever foreign mercenaries were present in the city. What the Vasilefs did have, though, was Conrad of Montferrat. Conrad rounded up a contingent of heavily armoured knights and charged headlong into the enemy ranks. The Byzantine infantry broke and fled. They were not here to die for some usurper, so they looked to save themselves. Vranas had to charge into the fray himself to prevent a rout and was killed. And that was that. No one follows a dead man into battle. The revolt was over. That's what a daring general can bring you, a surprise victory against the odds, a conclusive victory. 
had the Romans defeated the Bulgarians in a similarly decisive battle, that revolt might have ended quickly. The Romans could then have hired some Cumans and crushed various provincial rebels before the Fourth Crusade arrived. I'm not saying it's likely, but the fate of individual battles can often be more fickle than we imagine, and military victory is what brought legitimacy to a rebel leader. Once that was gone, their support would ebb away. Listener E.M. says, during the course of your description of the fires which ravaged Constantinople, you said that they came close to the Hippodrome. In earlier centuries, it seemed like the racetrack was the centrepiece of civic life. Was it still being used for games and gatherings? Was there any particular event that caused it to be used less? Or was it a lack of funding for large public spectacles? The Hippodrome remained the place where the imperial family displayed themselves to the public, where ceremonies were held and public executions staged. But yes, it was used much less than in Justinian's day, and the reason is indeed a lack of funds. Chariot racing ceased to be the all-consuming sport uh, it had once been when the caliphate rose in the 7th century. The government could no longer justify subsidising four racing factions to entertain a much-reduced urban population. From then until now, the races were only held a few times a year on specific occasions. For example, when Manuel Komnenos invited the Sultan of Iconium to stay. He put on lots of spectacles to impress him, including chariot races and acrobatic displays and that sort of thing. Listener RR asks for an update on Roman military technology. What did weapons and armour look like in this period? What about projectile weapons and the like? Now, I can't really give you a good answer to this one. I would recommend the Osprey series of books, which will give you images of what Roman soldiers may have looked like. But as I mentioned in our last episode, we know very little about the Comnenian military beyond what is written in the histories. So, for example, you may remember John Comnenos seemed to make great use of siege equipment in his campaigns, but then they play much less of a role in Manuel's reign. This could be for several reasons. Maybe John Kinemus, the historian, knew a lot more about military matters than Nikitas Coniates. Or it could be that John happened to have a preference for siege warfare. It could be that uh, John Komnenos had a, a group of Latin soldiers in his camp who brought Western siege expertise with them. Or it could just be that he was trying to take lots of walled cities and Manuel wasn't. Similarly, for infantry and cavalry, I don't have interesting news. As far as I'm aware, their weapons and armour have not changed dramatically since the days of Justinian. Of course, fashions and materials change over time, but the basic facts seem to always be reported the same way, that you have light-armed troops wearing padding and or wood armour, and then you have heavier infantry wearing metal and chainmail and the same goes for cavalry. Most were lightly armoured and fought with lances or spears or swords, and occasionally heavy cavalry would be available in full chain mail and armour for both man and horse. As is often the case with Byzantine history, we have less information to work with than we'd like. We don't have museums full of Roman army kit as we do for the earlier empire. 
But the sources don't seem to indicate that Roman military technology changed much over the centuries. The innovative weapons of war remained nomads who could ride quicker and shoot better than anyone else, and Latin heavy cavalry, who'd similarly been trained since a young age to fight in this high-risk, high-reward fashion. I know there were technological changes when it came to projectile weapons over the centuries, and I will cover those in our science and engineering episode when we get to it, but I've not seen those weapons play a decisive role in Roman warfare yet. Listener RR also asks whether I find the term Byzantine offensive. He's seen that there are online groups who take offence at the word and push back strongly, demanding the term Roman or Eastern Roman be used. As you may have guessed, I don't find the term offensive, since it is all over this podcast. I think it is a useful shorthand to distinguish one era of Roman history from another. And purely for the ease of the listening experience, I think it is handy to have a synonym for Roman. I think offence is all about context. The origins of the term Byzantine do sit in a tradition of denying the Romans their own identity. So in that sense, I can see why someone would find it offensive. But since so few people today seem to trumpet the Byzantines as their direct ancestors, and the term is widely understood, I'm inclined to keep using it along with an explanation of its problematic origins. It's worth saying, though, that Professor Caldellis makes a strong case in his writing that the term is offensive in proper works of history, and that, say, the anglicization of Ioannes into John, or the Latinization of Komnenos with a K into Komnenos with a C, are a form of cultural imposition, and that no other civilization is subjected to this treatment in academia. I certainly wouldn't argue with that, but consider what I'm doing to be a step removed, where ease of communication, rather than specificity of meaning, is more important. Several listeners asked for an update on the Jewish communities of Byzantium and how they fared during the Fourth Crusade. We actually know more about Byzantine Jews during Manuel's reign than at any other time in Byzantine history thanks to the travels of Benjamin of Tudela. Benjamin was from Spain and set off in 1165 to visit the Holy Land. Whether he planned to go further, or just kept going anyway, we don't know. But he travelled widely, going well beyond Jerusalem, and only returning home eight years later. He brought with him detailed notes on all the Jewish communities who showed him hospitality during his journey. He entered Byzantine territory at Corfu, travelled overland across Greece, then sailed up the coast to Constantinople. He then continued down south uh, towards Rhodes and then on to Cyprus and beyond. He visits 26 places in the empire which have Jewish communities, many of them thriving economically. They tend to have specialised in a particular industry, Um, silk workers being the most prestigious and tanners being the most derided because of the smell of their labour. In many Greek cities, he finds Jewish communities 
living happily alongside the natives. He also finds some in the countryside, living the life of farmers. In most places there is an organisation to Jewish life, a couple of hundred families often living alongside one another. Rabbis and community leaders are identified by name, and presumably they helped Benjamin with his onward progress. Only at Thessaloniki and Constantinople does Benjamin describe the Jews as oppressed, by which he means they live under official restrictions. At Constantinople they lived in Galata, as in the area to the north of the Golden Horn. They are not supposed to settle in the city proper, and, he adds, they are open to harassment and mockery in the streets. This all fits with our general picture of Byzantine Jewry across the centuries. The Jews often lived near a port and took on particular trades to ensure the economic survival of their community. They often lived happily alongside Christians and other groups, but in the shadow of immediate imperial authority, they were more likely to be publicly othered. Naturally, at the capital or Thessaloniki, they were in greater danger from those who felt the urge to demonstrate the strength of their Christian commitment, whether that be an urban mob or a new emperor or patriarch. Though we should say that some of these measures were made for the protection of the Jewish community. Uh, for example, the Jews of Constantinople were moved across the waters after a nasty riot in the 1040s where their possessions were attacked. According to historian David Jacobi, the Crusaders set fire to the Jewish quarters when they took the Galata Tower during the Fourth Crusade. This wasn't mentioned in any of the sources I read, but I'm sure he knows what he's talking about. Whether the Latins deliberately targeted the Jews or if this was just part of the addiction to arson, which some of the Latins seem to have, I'm not sure. But the Jews of Galata moved into Constantinople proper and settled on the southern shore of the city. Whether they or the small Muslim community suffered particularly during the sack, I don't know, but the Jews went on to live peacefully under the Latin Empire, so presumably nothing too serious took place. Several listeners also asked for an update on the Crimea and its capital of Cherson, which hasn't featured much in the narrative since Justinian II was exiled there back in the 7th century. And I don't have a huge amount to tell you. As far as I know, it continued to be a part of the empire and continued to prosper. It exported lots of grain, fish, hides and salt to the capital. The Romans barred Italian shipping from the Black Sea, and so the Crimea became increasingly important as a safe source of goods closeted away from Turkic attack or Latin pirates. After 1204, the area will be brought into the orbit of Trebizond, something we will get into in the narrative. Listener RR wanted more details about the Varangian Guard in this century, but we have almost no sources for the guard. So as listener R.R. points out, the makeup of the guard was now mostly Anglo-Saxons and Danes, rather than Rus. But I can't tell you much more about how many settled permanently in the empire, or how many went home after a period of time. I can say that I haven't come across any nobles with 
Varangian names in the narrative, in the way we do see men of Turkic or Latin origin who have clearly settled in the empire. Listener KT picked up on something I said about relics uh, when the Latins were pilfering them from Constantinople. I pointed out that there was scepticism about some of the relics and a concern not to pass on fraudulent bones, but that without our modern knowledge of dates, the average medieval person may not have grasped the huge distances in time between, say, Moses and Jesus, and then Jesus to 1204. Listener KT wants to know more about this. How long ago did they think Jesus had lived, and what was their sense of things that happened B.C.? This is one of those questions on which whole books could be written, I imagine, but I'll give you my sense of it. Um, Obviously, those without any formal education would have little sense of the span of time, let alone the mathematics necessary to do the calculations. From the accounts of tour guides at Constantinople, people's sense of the past was extremely hazy. Everyone knew Constantine had founded the city, and most knew that Justinian had built the Hagia Sophia, but beyond that it was a lottery. Even some educated people couldn't identify statues of Greek myths or of old emperors. Their guesswork is revealing. They usually plumped for a biblical figure, or an emperor from the last century. So probably most people's knowledge of history only went back as far as their grandparents' memories, and figures they heard about in church every week, like Abraham or Moses, seemed much more familiar than, say, Basil I. Even the very well-educated had their biases. I remember Procopius describing Africa when Belisarius was campaigning there, and to relate where he was, he told his reader about events from Herodotus, or the Odyssey. It didn't occur to him to mention, say, Septimius Severus, or any pre-Constantine Roman figure, because knowledge of those people was far more specialised than the legends that his readers learnt at primary school. Occasionally, someone truly learned, like Michael Pselos, will talk about old Roman emperors, the Republic, or even someone like Scipio Africanus. So you can tell that he'd absorbed a huge amount of writing. But that was rare. Histories were available, charting the major events from Adam and Eve through Julius Caesar up to the present day, and these were read and copied, but they weren't common knowledge the way the Iliad and the Bible were. So men with education would know the dating system. They would know that Moses had lived thousands of years ago, Jesus just a thousand, and Justinian 500 years ago. But often the men in those positions, men who would be most likely to be cynical about, say, a pile of bones being the genuine remains of a saint, were also the men whose job it was to uphold the sanctity of relics. So they were not incentivized to fertilize their scepticism. For ordinary people, we can only guess as to exactly how long ago they imagined biblical figures had walked the earth. Helping to cloud their sense of time was the fact that technology had not changed dramatically enough to make old stories seem old. People in the Iliad fought with sword and shield, just as they did. 
Jesus' parables of rural life were as relevant as ever. Their sense of how long a human life was was also very different to ours. If everyone you knew died before they were 50, then I don't think the idea of a century would mean as much to you as it does to us. Listener TM asks, What are your thoughts on the Angeloi as a dynasty? Before listening to the podcast, I thought they were incompetent, but now I have more sympathy for them, especially for Isaac Angelos. Was the fall of the Angeloi inevitable, or were they victims of circumstance? They were certainly thrown about by the winds of fate. We should always remember that Isaac Angelos did not ask to become emperor. He was elevated quite unexpectedly by the crowds, thanks to Andronicus's unpopularity. I had an email from a listener defending Isaac from my charge that he was a mediocre emperor. And certainly, he had a lot of bad luck with the Bulgarian uprising and the Third Crusade passing through in the midst of his troubles. But I'm going to have to agree with Billy Zane on this one and say that a real man makes his own luck. I'm only being slightly facetious. Isaac was in a similar position to the one Alexius Komnenos had found himself in a century earlier, and Alexius found a way out of it. That's why he's considered one of the best emperors, and Isaac is not. Alexius Angelos Komnenos was similarly competent without outstanding qualities, and that just wasn't what the empire needed at the time. And if we're calling them a dynasty, then we have to include Alexius Angelos, who succeeded spectacularly in restoring his family to the throne, but at what cost? I certainly don't think Isaac and AAK were doomed to failure, but it was on their watch that Constantinople was sacked, and so I think they have to go down as failures. They never had it easy, but they can't escape the blame for some of this. Listener GC asked me to rank Byzantine dynasties, which is fairly straightforward, I think. The Macedonians lasted the longest and presided over a long period of success. They got lucky that none of Lekapinos, Phokas or Zimiskis decided to get rid of them, but I think that's in part because they'd embedded their extended family within the bureaucracy. So I think it's then a three-way shootout between the Heraklians, the Isaurians, and the Komnenoi. It's hard to judge the first two because of a lack of sources. We don't know how much we can really blame Heraclius for the rise of the Caliphate. Probably there was nothing he could have done, and so his children and grandchildren should be commended for holding the line of the Taurus Mountains for the next few decades. Then you have Leo III and Constantine V, who on paper look like excellent emperors, but who are forever clouded by iconoclasm. And then we have the Komnenoi. All three dynasties came to power at a time of great crisis and kept the Byzantine ship afloat. I'm tempted to give it to the Isaurians, because the siege of 717 was such a major threat to the existence of Roman civilization, and by the end of their reign, the danger from the Arabs had passed. I think the Heraclians probably sneak into third because they faced such a relentless onslaught, whereas the Komnenoi at least had the Crusaders to help them. So, Macedonians, Isaurians, Heraclians, Komnenoi. 
Wikipedia is trying to convince me that there was a Leonid dynasty and a Justinianic dynasty, but I don't really count those. They weren't direct family successions, and none of the shorter-lived dynasties can compare to the top four. Listener GC also asked about a comparison between the Komnenoi and the Julio-Claudians. They might not seem similar at first, but listener GC points to the fact that both were established specifically as family aristocracies, and both ended when a tyrannical ruler was overthrown. Beyond that, I don't have a huge amount to say. I haven't studied the Julio-Claudians in depth. Certainly, the shadow of Augustus hung over the rest of the dynasty in a positive sense. His questionable descendants owed their right to rule to his blessed memory. And I suppose the sheer number of boys named Alexius shows a similar reverence for what Alexius Komnenos achieved. Both men had to cobble together a new way of doing business after a prolonged uh, period of civil war. But Augustus's reputation is that of a political genius, uh, whereas Alexius Komnenos was not. He was dogged and he was successful, but Augustus's system outlived the dynasty, whereas Alexius's crashed and burned. Even if the Fourth Crusade didn't happen, I think the Komnenian system of government was going to need major reform. The big difference between the dynasties, I would assume, is that the Komnenoi really was a family dynasty, in the sense that father prepared son for the role to some extent, whereas Augustus would never have picked any of the men who followed him if he'd had the choice. I think the fall of each dynasty is a bit more complicated than we might think. Nero often gets lumped in with Caligula as a sort of sadistic madman, but I think the reality is more complicated. Nero's fall began after a couple of provincial rebellions, when those close to him realised that an alternative emperor was available and they abandoned him. He then committed suicide. But Nero was still a popular figure amongst many groups of people, and fake Neros would rise after his death, like those claiming to be Manuel Komnenos' son. Whereas Andronicus was so unpopular that the crowds overthrew him spontaneously, and there is a similar sense of a tyrant going too far and provoking a reaction against the regime, but it's not strikingly similar. The Julio-Claudians were the first dynasty of the Roman Empire, and so everything they did was new and fascinating to everyone involved. Uh, After Nero's death, there was a huge civil war, um, because no one knew who had the right to rule next, whereas the fall of the Komnenoi fits rather neatly into the patterns of Byzantine politics. Isaac Angelos was hailed emperor, Andronicus was... Uh, murdered, and everyone went back to work the next day. That is the end of your questions uh, for this end-of-the-century period. Sort of. I have left quite a few unanswered, and I'll briefly tell you why. Some listeners asked for a kind of breakdown of the entire Byzantine world. Farming life, city life, provincial life, language education, beauty, pets, birth, death, etc. I'm very happy to cover those topics when we get to 1453, but I don't think I can pause the narrative for the amount of time it would take me to research those, I'm afraid. 
A couple of listeners asked about provincial administration in the Komnenian period. Uh, what I can offer you is the Byzantine story I produced on a man named Kekav Menos. In it, we learnt quite a bit about the mindset of a provincial governor, their relationship with their community and with the capital. We had lots of questions about the Turks in Anatolia, some of which I can't really answer, like the exact numbers of nomads who uh, moved onto the plateau, but lots of which we will discover when the narrative moves forward and the Seljuks fall and the Ottomans rise. Several of you asked very pertinent questions about how Professor Caldellis' theory about Byzantium being a republic holds up in the era of Komnenian aristocracy. Don't worry, I will be putting that one to the man himself when we next speak. Listener E asked about which specific texts were destroyed during the sack of Constantinople. Great question. I have no idea. But I will definitely cover the transmission of texts from Byzantium to the West when we get to 1453. And I'm happy to go back in time and talk about, uh, you know, where our copies of Procopius come from and that sort of thing. Listener JM asks whether 1204 should be seen as the real end of the Roman Empire and whether the successor states are something quite different. And he adds, would your answer be different if Constantinople was never retaken? It's a fabulous question, but I can't answer it. Not yet. The good news is the narrative will continue and we will be able to draw our own conclusions same goes for those of you asking what Alexius Angelos Komnenos did next, or what happened to Trebizond. That will all be covered as we go forwards. If you would like to ask another question, or follow up on one I've answered, then come and speak to me in person, or as in person as a Zoom call can get. In two days' time, Sunday the 21st of May 2023, I will be hosting three separate Zoom calls for patrons, where you can ask me anything. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium, even for just one dollar, and you can join the course. <laughs>